What's up, guys? Welcome back to another daily Bible reading snapshot. Today, we're looking at Exodus 7 and 8 here in the Old Testament, and we're starting to see the conflict that's going to come up between Pharaoh and the Lord. And I know it doesn't say that explicitly, but as you read today, I hope you're going to see the contrast that Pharaoh is taking a very clear stance against God and against God's people. So what it might look like to you is Pharaoh versus Moses, but really what it is is Pharaoh versus the Lord. And the reason I say that is because we have some competitive things that happen here where Moses throws down his staff and then the becomes a serpent and then it becomes a staff again. And then Pharaoh's magicians do something similar. They perform a similar trick. And then God says, you know what we're going to do? We are going to enact some plagues that are going to go on the land. So first of all, he says the water is going to turn to blood. And we've got um, some people that are now going to be without water. I mean, a lot of people that are going to be without water because the Nile River turned to blood. Then plague number two, we've got frogs that come up on the land. Plague number three, we've got gnats that come on the land. Plague number four, we got flies that come on the land. And then we stop. So we're going to read five through ten later on. But we're just reading these first two chapters of the plagues. But something I want you to see is on the surface, why do these plagues happen? Well, the first thing is because Pharaoh didn't let the people go. But on a deeper level, God is facing off against Egypt. He is showing, based on the, the things that he sends, these plagues are not random, they're specific, that God is showing that he is more important, he is stronger, he is more powerful than any other god. So all the gods of the Egyptians were responsible for different things, and some of them were responsible um, for things like the Nile River and some were responsible. Some were the gods of the frogs and gods of the gnats and gods of the flies. Um, there are the, all these different gods and God shows that he has control over them. Their gods don't. What is it showing to us? Well, that shows to us that God is more powerful than any other God. And really God is the only one who's sovereign over the world. All the idols, all the gods that people worship, they're nothing compared to the Lord. He is the only God. So not only is God showing us that, he's very directly showing this to the Egyptians. And what's the response? What should they do? They should say, the Lord, Yahweh, is the only God. Pharaoh should say, I respect God. I respect Yahweh. He is the only God. I will let his people go. That's what it should do. But the thing is, it's so interesting. We see this all throughout the Bible, whether it's in the book of Exodus or even in the book of Revelation, that when God brings his judgment, instead of, softening people's hearts, God's judgment hardens people's hearts. They want to continue in their sin as they're being judged for it. They go deeper and deeper into their sin, which is so interesting because sometimes we would think, well, if God just gives a little judgment, that's going to wake people up and they're going to realize they need to stop. The experience of the Bible is very different. The experience of people in the Bible is when they're under God's judgment, oftentimes they go harder and deeper into their sin which is a sad thing. But that's what we see happen with these Egyptians. And God has to prove to them through turning water to blood, bringing frogs on the land, bringing gnats on the land, bringing flies on the land, proving that God is the only God. And he actually, in the process, embarrasses the idols of the people. So that's Exodus 7 and 8. We're going to talk about more of the plagues tomorrow. But today we're looking at Matthew chapter 17 in the New Testament, which starts off by saying six days after this conversation in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and he takes them up on this high mountain, and he's transfigured before them. The idea is Jesus shows his true power and glory before them. It's similar to what happens with Moses on the mountain when he sees God's glory and presence, 
in Exodus 33 and 34, very similar, Jesus shows his power and his glory. And when Jesus is on a mountain showing his power and glory, who shows up? Well, fittingly, Moses shows up. And also, Elijah shows up. Elijah is that character from our Old Testament, from the book of 1 Kings, that lives this righteous life in an unrighteous nation of Israel, but also he's the one who goes to the mountain of God and he sees God. Which you might be thinking, the mountain of God? What's the mountain of God? Where do people see God on the mountain of God? Well, Mount Sinai, or, or, or the mountain uh, that we also saw earlier in the, in the land of Midian. It's the same mountain. So down in the southern mountain area of, of the Sinai Peninsula, Mount Sinai, still there today, that's where Moses met God. That's where Moses met him in the burning bush. And then he's going to meet him later on and get the tablets. But also that's where Elijah went after he fought the prophets of Baal. He went down to the south and he saw God there again. So just interesting, the mountain, the, the God's glory, Moses and Elijah, it all fits together. We should be reading this and saying, oh yeah, I know exactly why Elijah's there. And oh yeah, I know why Moses is there because both of them saw God on the mountain. Now they're showing up with God on the mountain to show to Peter, James, John. It's super cool how that all works. And God speaks. When Jesus is there and he shows his glory, he speaks. God says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So God has very clear instructions for all of us as we encounter Jesus. We are supposed to listen to him and obey him. So it says that happens here. Then Jesus then heals this boy who has um, a demon, who's oppressed by a demon. After experiencing so many things, Peter, James, and John should be the ones that understand Wow, Jesus is the one who's able to do all this. But then his disciples come to him privately and say, why could we not cast this demon out? Very interesting. After they should have been inspired with all this faith, they are unable to do something. And the reason, Jesus says, is because you didn't have the proper faith. You got to trust me. You should have called out on me and trusted me. Don't just wave your hands. Don't do some magic potion or some magic trick. That's not what this is. You got to rely on the power of God. Then Jesus says, look, Again, this is the second time he said this. He says, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And it says, after he told them this, they were greatly distressed. They were stressed out. What does this mean? They, they fight on the inside about what this means and it should be pretty clear. Jesus is saying very clearly he is going to die, and but he will rise again. Like, don't worry about that. So then the end of chapter 17 from verse 24 to 27, we see this, this interesting thing where the people are supposed to pay this temple tax. And the, the people ask Jesus and his disciples, hey, do you pay the temple tax? And Jesus spoke and he said, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Well, obviously they don't take tax from their sons. So yeah, from others. And Jesus says, yeah, so the sons are free, right? And they say, yeah. But Jesus says, however, not to give offense, although the sons are free, here's a temple tax. So it says, go into the sea, put your hook in a fish, and the first fish that comes up, when you take it up, you will find in it a shekel. Take that and give it to me, or give it to them for me and you to pay the tax. So very interesting. Jesus is teaching us something about what it means to belong to God, that it's like, is there an exemption from, from taxes here? That's interesting to know. If we have exemption from taxes, Jesus says, basically, look, God gives to his 
children, specifically Jesus, right? It's, it's ultimately God the Son, a freedom. He doesn't really need to pay the tax, but he will to not offend others and to set a good example for others. But the point is, if you belong to God, there are special rights and privileges that you have as a part of God's family because of your relationship with the Lord. Again, not a relationship that you established on your own good works, Reminds me of Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 9, where God says to Israel, it's not because you were many, it's not because you were mighty that I chose you, but I chose to set my love on you because I chose it. Same thing with Christians today. Ephesians 1 says that God has chosen to set his love on this group of people that we call the Christians. Is it because of a good thing they did? No, it's just because God chose to set his love on them. These people who turn to Jesus and respond in faith, a faith that is a gift of God. So, all this amazing thing, all this amazing stuff we see here in Matthew 17. And ultimately, we see that Jesus is the one that we need to listen to. He's the son. He is exempt from the laws. But even though he's exempt from this temple tax law, he pays it, which I think is so cool that he shows we need to look to him as our authority and our Lord. So that's all that we get from Matthew chapter 17. There's a lot more there. Um, so as you read today and seek to apply what it says, remember verse number five. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. God tells us, listen to him. We need to listen to Jesus. So thanks for reading. We'll see you back tomorrow for another daily Bible reading snapshot.